Welcome to the first edition of the Populous Papers, where rogues and scoundrels gather unlimited motivation and vitality as we beseech the invisible chiefs to help guide you on a journey of subterranean enchantment where the elixir vitae awaits your indulgence. Okay, we are live in the studio. I am your host, Colin Kramer, a professor of speech and debate that has come to see how independent thinking, ritual magic, and a mutual investigation into the truth can help transform Homo sapien into Homo evolutus and usher in a brand new eon of enlightenment, alliance, and self-sufficiency, which hopefully will bring an end to corporate rule and aristocratic control in the United States. How do we manage this? Well, we infiltrate the apparatus of the establishment and overwhelm their house of constipated reason with copious amounts of provocative and unusual art, progressive populism, thoughtful coalition, and a Rosicrucian renaissance. This could trigger what some would call a paradigm shift, a mass consciousness movement, the free thought project, the age of Aquarius, the Great Awakening, but for now, we'll just call it the New Eon. And it all starts right here in the creative commonwealth of California, the Golden State. It's not only where East meets West. It's not just a magnetic chakra blasting beams from beyond to every point on Earth. It's a golden state of mind. The same one that brought us surfing, skateboarding, and snowboarding as we know them, and happens to be the state that sets the standard for... Well, almost everything, from real estate practice to environmentalism. Remember, the very first Earth Day was in Santa Barbara. And also it's more obvious things like how films are made. But do you remember the old Universal Studios intro? It was the word universal in place of the equator, with an image of our favorite planet. Well, at least it's my favorite planet. I mean, maybe some of you are more into Neptune or uh, Pluto. Is that still a dwarf planet? I don't know. Anyway... The Earth is spinning behind the Universal logo. And I don't know if any of you noticed, but the sequence begins at China and it spins toward California, where it stops. It, it follows the journey of civilizations through the Middle East and Great Britain, and it ends here. And that's precisely where we're at. The buck stops here. And... What I want to know is if we're going to keep going around and around playing the same old game, or are we going to start something new? It's all been accumulating and escalating up to this tipping point. A crossroads, for sure, which, for me, is both very exciting and utterly terrifying at the exact same time. I mean, on the one hand, I wonder if this is the beginning of the end. But on the other, I feel like everything is so new and so unchartered. You know, I spent several years working as a court researcher and a private investigator. Uh, I could talk about that stuff for weeks. But something that stood out was, you know, working in the courts and everything, was just how little we've figured out as a society. In fact, every time someone crosses that little gate to enter a courtroom, they're acknowledging we don't know. And that's something that's rather unique about this nation. 
you know, we admit that everything's still up in the air. Anything can happen and you can feel it too. You can feel it. It's almost as if some kind of a divine presence is somehow using us to figure itself out. Are we co-partners with the Great Spirit? I uh, can't say for sure yet. But I'll tell you this, if you respect peace, justice, and the American way, you are invited. And if you don't respect that stuff, then, uh, well, you're still invited. Because, you know, I'm kind of a hippie, I love everybody, and I love contrasts and open exchange, independent thinking. So join the Freak Show, sign up, hop on the Magical Mystery Bus, and help us take control of reality's steering wheel. Could be fun. It's a movement to move all movements. And I especially want to hear any bizarre ramblings from inside the nightmarish mind of a dangerous madman like me. So our emphasis will be on revolutionary West Coast activity all through the lens of a Jewish Southern Californian from the 90s. I am a progressive with a slight libertarian streak and want nothing more than to return the United States to its Jeffersonian populist tradition, which created the most vibrant and long-lasting middle class the world has ever seen. How to achieve this? Well, we at the Populist Papers hold firm that the best way to end the gridlock of aristocratic rule and corporate excess is with an open source collective which I call the PRI, Public Resource Initiative. It's about making the tools that we need more accessible. And it's not just a name. We are the populist papers. We are the public resource. And the more we all put into it, the more we can all get out of it. Because we are the ones we've been waiting for. I had a strange person on the street ask me once in Echo Park. He was like, hey, What's the most v valuable commodity on earth? And I thought, well, who the hell is this guy? But, you know, I'm usually open to engage spontaneously. So I'm thinking, hmm, what is the most valuable commodity? Is it platinum? Maybe palladium? Gold? And he said, uh, I'll never forget this. He says, I think it's people. And my life has never been the same since. <laughs> and we're all better off when we're all better off. You think we're just a bunch of monolithic, lifeless apologists for the progressive cause? Uh-uh, boo-boo. The goal is to create a richer public domain. And without a rich public domain, you can't really have culture. So this domain will be centered around a massive open source collective to stimulate self-empowerment, freedom of choice, and ultimately, a more civilized society. Some call it copyleft instead of copyright. And Thomas Jefferson would have loved it. You know, he said that patents should only last as long as the inventor is alive. That's it. He may not have been our greatest president, but he is, I think, the most quotable intellectual of all time. So... I want to share with you a Jefferson quote about the nature of invention. Quote, By a universal law, indeed, whatever, whether fixed or movable, belongs to all men equally and in common, 
is the property for the moment of him who occupies it, but when he relinquishes the occupation, the property goes with it. End quote. Uh, Jefferson goes on to say that, quote, ideas should freely spread from one another over the globe for the moral and mutual instruction of man and improvement of his condition seems to have been peculiarly and benevolently designed by nature when she made them like fire, expansible all over space without lessening their density in any point. And like the air in which we breathe, move and have our physical being incapable of confinement or exclusive appropriation, inventions then cannot in nature be a subject of property. End quote. That's my boy, Thomas Jefferson, in a letter to Isaac McPherson, August 13th, 1813. So TJ could be considered not only the author of the Declaration of Independence and father of the University of Virginia. Um, strangely, those are the only two things on his headstone. Um, if you go check it out in Columbia, Missouri, it, he didn't even want his headstone to mention that he was a president of the United States. He was more proud of having founded a free college. What a guy. But on top of those other great achievements, he was basically the godfather of the open source movement. Um, although, you know, using words like peculiarly, literally, you know, he wasn't known for being the best public speaker. He actually despised speaking in public. And he even tried to do his State of the Union addresses by letter. <laughs> Can you imagine that? It'd be like, yeah, I, maybe Trump won't give us a State of the Union. He'll just kind of give us a series of tweets letting us know what's up. But uh, I feel like Jefferson's point is that man is of nature. So man's ideas are also a part of nature. And that these ideas are supposed to benefit everyone instead of just making one family into billionaires, you know? So this brings us to the notion of collective ownership, the commons. Uh, I wish more people knew what the commons meant, but we haven't taught civics in public schools for decades. Um, but basically, the citizens of a state legally own that state's resources. That's why they're called commonwealths, the commonwealth of Virginia, the commonwealth of Maryland. So let's talk about wealth for a sec, wealth and power. Part of the goal of this podcast is to help people unplug from the grid in any way they can to catalyze the reopening of the commons. We're going to be releasing documents and interviewing a lot of experts about things like how to convert your car into water power, DIY urban farming tricks, as well as uh, exchanging tips and strategies for staying under the radar of unruly mass surveillance. And what I'm getting at here is a means of generating your own power, enough to help enforce a reverse income tax or maybe a basic guaranteed income. It's similar to what Alaska does with their oil. And this is something that libertarians and socialists alike can really build a coalition around. The amount of solar energy in the Southwest alone could generate enough revenue to implement a universal guaranteed income, or at least a negative income tax. That's right, you'd get money from the government. And this is actually a very conservative measure. 
Think about it. Even Richard Nixon looked into a basic income guarantee for all Americans. Because if you look at the number, you look at the actual numbers, and if you just gave people money every year, you could abolish Social Security, unemployment, food stamps. Get rid of them. Don't need them. Because by cutting all of those administrative costs involved with maintaining these sloppy bureaucracies and departments, we'd still end up saving money. Yeah, I'm a big fan of just cutting out the middlemen, cutting through all that red tape, and just giving money away to citizens. Because it's like injecting a direct stimulus into the economy. Rather than paying a bunch of people to sit in offices every day approving or denying claims. And wouldn't that be a dream come true? Imagine never sending another cent to the IRS in your life ever again. And never even having to look at another utility bill again. Whew. I think everyone would benefit from this. And it's possible to implement if we come together, if we stay focused and stay engaged. Let's reach out to find our allies and really make this happen. And remember that the LADWP is already publicly owned. That's right. We own it. It's ours. We can take control of all of the resources our state produces and the apparatus which governs it. So the future of reality really is in the palm of your hand. Well, power trip. I've personally come to see this as a national security issue. You know, I live just a stone's throw from the Porter Ranch Aliso Canyon storage facility. Remember where the gas leak happened? Insane. And when I saw some of my neighbors and their children with blood coming out of their noses just from breathing the air in our neighborhood, I couldn't believe it. And the fact that it was happening the same time as the Flint, Michigan water crisis, ooh, it really burns my bubble. How could we let this happen? We live in one of the most innovative and inventive places on earth. And yet we can't even drink the water or breathe the air. How fucked up is that? In the past decade, 28 people have died right here in the San Fernando Valley, colliding with freight trains and big rigs that were transporting oil. Now, has anyone ever heard of people dying because of solar power or wave power or wind power? It's preposterous. There was another crash, uh, September of 2015, I believe. It was a train carrying fossil fuels, and it went off track. And I don't believe anyone died that time, thank goodness. But uh, there were devastating fires and destruction nonetheless. And what the fuck for? So a disgusting, obsolete industry can milk what's left of its pathetic, dying little cash cow? Come on! Not allowed. Not anymore. The bastards have done this again and again and again. And to make matters even worse, fracking companies are injecting hazardous materials into our land, often seeping into our groundwater. And some farms are even watering our food crops with the leftover chemical waste. We can't let the goons get away with this any longer. If you are not working in the interests of the American people, you are no longer allowed to conduct business here. Even if it means California withdrawing from the Union. That's right. Consider this Resistance Central. 
and your Cal Exit headquarters. You think we fuck around? And of course, we can't talk about this without mentioning Standing Rock. Hey, newsflash, Standing Rock is not only an Indian reservation, it's a sovereign nation. And it has been since 1868. National sovereignty is another conservative cause. Because foreign governments are not supposed to invade sovereign nations, especially not for a fucking oil pipeline. So I'm calling on humanitarians and constitutionalists alike to stand with Standing Rock and put the governor of North Dakota on trial for war crimes. There's a Sioux prophecy that's come to my attention about a giant black snake, which, if allowed to pass through, will kill us all. I believe this giant black snake is the oil pipeline. And no matter how state-of-the-art the infrastructure is, at least 3% of that black toxic sludge is guaranteed to leak. It's disgusting, and it will destroy us. Besides, there hasn't even been an environmental impact review. So there's no telling how devastating the completion of this pipeline will really be. I urge everyone to call their state representatives and tell them they fucked up. No one invades sovereign nations, tortures peaceful protesters, contaminates our environment, and gets away with it. This utter disregard for human and earthly life is not only unacceptable, it's unnecessary. There is a better way. In fact, four cities have already managed to convert their utility grids to a 100% renewable and sustainable system. They're Greensburg, Kansas, Burlington, Vermont, Aspen, Colorado, and Georgetown, Texas. Then there's places like Israel that are on the cutting edge of aquaponics, hydroponics, and all kinds of other greenhouse technologies. I say we reach out to them as sister cities or sister states and take on as many of their ideas as possible. Get them on the phone. I mean, if ancient Persians could store ice cubes underground for entire summers and Romans developed a way to use their aqueduct system as air conditioning... I think we could pull off a clean energy system in California nowadays. It's been said that the Earth is its own generator. And if the macrocosm and microcosm are symbiotic, if the principle of as above, so below still applies, then every household can be its own generator too. Ultimately, if we can't have drinkable water and breathable air, then we can't function as a community. That makes the need for clean energy a case of national security. And it's not too much to ask. Let's take this seriously, and let's take action. Now. Thank you. That's enough of my rant. Oh, but I forgot about Germany. Uh, wait a minute. <laughs> Even Germany, the cloudiest country in all of Europe, is producing so much solar energy right now that their entire electrical grid was being overloaded, and they had to upgrade the whole thing. And yet, L.A., with so many opportunities for wind power, wave power, and solar power right at our fingertips, especially here in the valley where it's flat and we have thousands of abandoned parking lots, we're acting like it's still the 1800s. So do you think maybe we could get just a little piece of that $6.5 trillion that went missing from the Pentagon last year? Can you believe that shit? It's like, oops, we lost $6.5 trillion tax dollars. Uh, don't know what happened to it. 
well, sorry about that. Uh, oh, well, moving on. No, 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 no. You think you're bad? We're the bad motherfuckers right now. And just like when California sued the EPA back in 2007 for not letting us set our own emission standards, we'll have to take matters into our own hands. Here in the Golden State, we have one of the largest economies on planet Earth. The most creative, forward-thinking minds are right here. And yet, we're bearing so much of the burden for the taker states that pay nothing in taxes compared to us. In fact, when California's taxes are paying for people like Georgia to still have segregated proms, it certainly qualifies as taxation without representation. I didn't sign up for that shit. Now... I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but for example, California pays the federal government in taxes something like, well, for every dollar we send to the federal government, they give us back like a quarter. Whereas a state like Georgia, one of the taker states, for every dollar they send to the federal government, they get back like two or three dollars. So you see that we already have a very collectivist structure in this country, but now we need to just straighten out our priorities. And if those bastards want segregation in their state, I sure as hell ain't paying for it. We have the, some of the highest housing costs, the highest taxes, the highest gas prices, and we're devastating our home to grow food and to bring in oil and provide for people that still want to hang the Confederate flag. And I've had it. And I've had it with supporting an abusive, corrupt, and unchecked federal government. Enough is enough. And remember, Thomas Jefferson said that when our government becomes destructive, it is our duty to abolish it and create a new one. That time has come, my friends. California alone has a larger population than all of Canada. And I'm open to different strategies. Uh, Washington and Oregon are pretty cool. If they want to decide that they want to be a part of our uh, new union, that'd be great. Alaska and Hawaii are pretty cool too. Uh, they're invited. And maybe we'll stay under the U.S. military for now, but just separate economically, you know? Statehood is more symbolic than anything else. So what state of mind are you in? Think about it. What if we had let the South secede when they wanted to? Imagine the kind of progress we would have made in the North by now. Not being beholden to backwards ideologues and disproportionate numbers of senators. This is taxation without representation. and We're not going to take it anymore. The United States was never meant to be this big. It was supposed to be just 13 tiny colonies, and Great Britain warned us not to fuck with the Aboriginal Americans and not to overextend ourselves. But we're like, oh, uh, uh, boo-boo, we're going in. And the imperialism still hasn't stopped. It's become completely unsustainable. You remember when the Katrina hurricane happened and trucks and trucks filled with medical supplies were sent down to New Orleans from New York and D.C.? Well, you know what happened when the trucks arrived? They were told to go right back where they came from. Oops, sorry, we don't need you after all. Go home. Misunderstanding. And it's like, what a waste. 
Too much centralization leads to serious abuse, waste, and excess like this in many, many, many ways. So maybe we should break the country up into a bunch of smaller unions. The nine nations of the United States. Think about it. Hey, could be fun. I've actually had a map drawn up since 2007, and I will be circulating it online soon. Uh, by the way, if you haven't already, follow me on Twitter and Facebook. Just search for Colin Kramer or The Populist Podcast. We're there. Maybe the first step is creating a new political party. I'd like to call it the Commonwealth Party. Uh, or the Populist Party, or, or the Unity Party. Call it whatever the fuck you want, but start showing up. Show up to meetings, and it doesn't even have to be a separate party. It can be within, it can be a movement within the Democratic Party, or even within the Libertarian Party. Hell, show up to a Republican Party meeting. I mean, that's an important American institution. Take it back from these goons, these insane people that have, that have just destroyed us with partisan politics. Take us back to our roots, and if we take our government back one municipality at a time, local movements have always had a more direct and a more long-lasting impact. More people participate when issues are local, and it tends to be nonpartisan at the local level. Decentralization is the key to keeping corporate abuses in check, ending partisan gridlock, and eventually flipping the power pyramid upside down. So, we need to take a quick break, and when we come back, you're in for a real treat. Our first guest, Steve Phillips, is going to talk us through a self-defense surveillance workshop, speaking of abuse of power, and he's going to reveal some very effective ways of protecting yourself from corporations, governments, and hackers. So stay tuned.
You're listening to The Populous Papers, a podcast for the people. Steve Phillips is the founder of Cryptag, an organization dedicated to protecting the privacy of every internet user by building secure apps for activists, journalists, and you. He is the creator of Executable Philosophy, a new philosophical methodology that enables us to compute philosophical facts and more. He helps organize Revolution LA, a progressive grassroots organizing group in LA whose objective is to create a peaceful, people-powered revolution, setting the framework for a society that benefits the many and not the few. He also organizes a new San Francisco Bay Area-based group called Cypherpunks Write Code, whose mission is to galvanize the world's developer and designer communities to contribute to free, open-source, privacy-enhancing software that the world so desperately needs. Steve, thank you for being with us. Welcome to the Populist Papers. Thanks, Colin. Excited to be here. This is great. Now, um... I was talking earlier in my rant about the Jeffersonian tradition in America. Mm-hmm. Um, he's one of my favorite presidents. He might be my favorite intellectual of all time. I mean, he's just so cool. quotable. He and Oscar Wilde, you know, I could just read their quotes all day. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, looking into it, uh, I've got actually a letter handy. And Jefferson is describing his take on patents. And mm-hmm. in many ways, he was kind of the godfather of the open source movement. Can you break down for us some of the history behind the open source movement? Sure. I mean, I, I don't know it as far back as, as Jefferson, that's for sure. But uh, in, sort of, uh, in sort of modern times, the, the open source movement, so, so first of all, so what does it mean for a piece of software to be open source? If, if software is open source, that means that the source code, that, that's the uh, sort of instructions that a computer programmer types in in order to program a computer, um, that source code is, is open for anyone in the world to see um, in, if it's an open source program. Now, the, the open source movement, sort of, it's sort of a subset. It, it's, it, it's very much related to and comes out of uh, a sort of broader and more politically minded movement called the free software movement mm. that was started by, by Richard Stallman in, I think, 1985 or so. And uh, he says that originally all software was open source. Uh, he was at MIT, and people were, you know, writing cool programs and learning from each other. And he said it's this very intellectually rich environment. And, and th- that kind of learning, that sort of um, control that you have over your own, um, I mean, over the things that affect your life, such as, you know, and if you're on a computer a lot, then, you know, obviously the, the computer is very important. And he knew that in the future that a lot of people would be using computers, and he didn't like this idea that some company could write proprietary software, closed-source software, where it's doing who knows what. You have no idea. Maybe maybe there's malicious features in there that you don't know about, and yet in order to kind of live your life and do what you need to do on a computer, you're going to uh, have to kind of put up with this this software that, that may include malicious features, and he thinks that... If it's your computer, it should be doing what you want it to do, not what other people want it to do, not what the software developers want it to do or some, some company that, uh, that is not beholden to you. So originally, he's like, um, like I said, originally at, uh, at MIT, everything was open source. And then he said these, all these private companies started 
up and they were doing like artificial intelligence and they all wanted their kind of secret sauce and their best way of doing AI. So he said the, uh, the sort of intellectual environment at MIT, at least in the, uh, their AI lab, was sort of ruined. And then there's all these people went off and sort of fractured among all these uh, closed source AI companies. So he's sitting there and he's like, well, like this, this sucks. Like I, so like my sort of friends and, and environment have sort of gone to, uh, to these private companies and, and, uh, yeah, they're, they're writing proprietary software. So he said, okay, there's, there's lots of like proprietary closed source stuff that exists, but I'm going to start the free software movement where it's not just that, that all the software is open source, but, there's also uh, other uh, freedoms attached to that other than just the open source part. And that is whoever has access to free software um, cannot just see the source code, but they should be able to modify that source code. They should be able to run those programs on their own computer that have those modifications that they've added. And they should be able to redistribute uh, those pieces of software that have those changes. So he thought that that just gave more people kind of more, more control over their, their lives. And when you talked, uh, when you used the term open source to Richard Stallman, he's sort of disgusted and said, like, it's not just about being able to see the source code. It's about being able to kind of control what is, uh, what is on your computer and be able to have these other, other freedoms. So, um, so as far as open source goes, which again, is like kind, kind of a, kind of a subset, kind of like just part of the, the free software idea. I mean, open source has, I mean, taken over the world in some ways. I mean, there are, I mean, if, if, if you look at the, the software that is used to, say, serve up web pages, um, all of, almost all of that software is open source, except a little bit that Microsoft has created. Um, Android, which runs on over a billion devices, which is obviously Google's open source operating system, the core of that is open source, although Google has made more and more of it proprietary over time, mm-hmm. which is, which is, which is unfortunate, and uh, Richard Stallman would tell you that, look, if you only have open source, then at any time a, a private company could come along and say, you know what, the next version of our software isn't going to be open source. And then you're kind of locked in, uh, in some ways, uh, analogous to, to how people are, how we are with, uh, with Android. Because, because Android is open source and it's not um, – there's not these additional free software freedoms that like guarantee that uh, um, that that you can kind of make these modifications and that uh, future versions won't be made um, closed source. Um, anyway, that that's that's a problem for kind of software freedom. Right. Um, uh, I definitely like this idea that the more of a rich public domain we have, uh, the freer the world will be and um, just keeping accessibility as open as possible. And, and, and Jefferson does talk about that in his letter about how inventions and ideas, you know, they're of nature, men are of nature. And, Mm. you know, we are kind of meant to share these things for the common good of all. And it's sort of, it's meant to spread like wildfire. So as you said, not just access, but the ability, the freedom, you know, to modify and, you know, it's it's all an ongoing experiment. You know, that's the whole beauty of it. And the fact that we have this this apparatus, um, you know, the federal government was able to 
best country in the world. We figured out internet. Um, Mm -hmm. And somehow, you know, just like with pharmaceuticals, we collectively invest in all this stuff because our government can take risks that the private sector never could. So the fact that we're all invested in this, you know, these technologies and these discoveries, and yet we just end up turning them over. You know, it's like we're socializing all the liabilities and investment, and then somehow we're allowing uh, the benefits to be privatized by by a very small few. Yeah, it's kind of like the uh, saying, a rising tide raises all boats. I can definitely relate to, as an educator, you know, um, figuring out lesson plans. You know, a lot of teachers try and reinvent the wheel. And it's mm-hmm. so great yeah. to have uh, things like Scratch, you know, which is MIT. But uh, again, it benefits everyone when these things are accessible and open. So let's get into the hacker movement a little bit. I'd love to hear your take on sort of when it began and how that overlaps in some ways with the open source community. Sure. So so the term hacker is sort of a uh, sort of tricky just because there's so many different definitions. So yes, there's a hacker in the sort of software security, computer security sense. Where people are hacking into some other device, hacking into some computer. Um, but uh, but I believe the original sort of uh, notion of, of hacker actually also comes out of MIT. They had a um, what is what were they called? Was it the phone phone freaks? Um, th- th- there's some of that, but before that, there was like a railroad club. I forget what it was called. I should have uh, looked this up. But anyway, at, at MIT, there's this original notion of, of people doing kind of um, hardware hacks, where people were uh, doing interesting things with um, w- with hardware. But um, but yeah, that that seemed to quickly kind of merge with some of the the software stuff you mentioned. You mentioned phone freaking, where people were figuring out that um, instead of having to put coins into like uh, a public uh, phone or a uh, what are you even called? Not a pull phone, pay phone, a right. pay phone. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't used one of those in a while. Uh, I know it's only it's only fifteen years, but I, yeah, I guess it's a. Well, I'm scared <laughs> of them. You know, every, whenever I see them, like they look scary. Like I'm going to get some disease or something from touching it. Like. No, it's true. Yeah, my my parents were worried. They're like, "Hey, if you put your finger in to like grab coins out, somebody might have put like a needle in there to like give you." I'm, I'm like. Like probably, I don't know, it's one of those like fear-based news stories that is totally classic where it's like it's probably zero people who have ever been affected by that or maybe one, but it turns into some, uh, some, giant, some giant thing, which uh, speaks to how the media makes money off of headlines and fear and stuff like that. But, oh, uh, corporate but, sensationalism. But, yeah, the media, uh, I, whenever people try and tell me the media is liberally biased, um, I tell them they're sensationally biased. Right, right, right. Yeah, there's different, uh, different, different biases from different, you know, stations, which stem from different power factions and, and stuff like that. But, but anyway, back, back to payphones, I guess. Yeah, phone freaking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. With with phone freaking, there's people who realize, like, wait a second. Instead of putting coins coins into, um, well, instead of having to pay for like long distance calls, what's what's really going on is that like when you press a number on a payphone, what, what's really going on is that transmits a certain sound. And um, if you get like a certain, like, if you get a certain device 
um, that is, is capable of making sounds at specific frequencies, you can just make those sounds, each of which represents a distinct number, and you kind of uh, point that towards the, the receiver of the phone, and instead of, uh, instead of making... Uh, instead of having to pay for those calls, they realized that you could uh, uh, make calls for free. And then, so it started off as these sort of uh, sort of geeks who were um, playing with, you know, tele, you know, telecommunications networks. Like suddenly <laughs> existed around that time. They thought that was interesting, and they realized they could, you know, they could do prank calls. Um, there's one where I think Steve Wozniak did the following. Steve Wozniak uh, co-founded Apple. He uh, he said he played this prank where he had, and they like figured out not just to make a free call, but to like figure out how to sort of uh, do what they wanted with this with the uh, the phone network. Mm. So one time, I think it was Waz. Uh, he often goes by Steve Wozniak. Uh, he, he played this prank where he had two other people's phones ring at the same time, and when they picked up, they were on a call with each other. They're like, hello, you know, hey, you just called me. No, you just called me. No, no, I'm, you definitely just called me. And of course, he's listening and like cracking up at how awesome it was to uh, to do stuff like that. So you, you can you can see uh, you can see the sort of attitude where there's it, it's not about you know this criminal behavior and trying to you know destroy things or anything. I mean, uh, Richard Solomon, the uh, who I mentioned earlier, uh, creator of the free software movement, he defines hacking as playful cleverness. So if you're hacking on software, hacking on hardware, either way, you, you, you're like trying to figure out new techniques. So you're just cleverly sort of experimenting with with technology. So that's the notion of of hacking. Like when people say, you know, talk about hackerspaces. You know, uh, I co-founded Santa Barbara Hackerspace in, in 2010, and I wanted an environment where I could hack on software and learn from other people and experiment with technology and yeah, just learn learn a lot of stuff that way. So there's there's that notion of hacking, um, right? And that uh, real quick kind of piggybacks with what we're talking about with open source, because my understanding was that uh, initially the hacking movement was about making every personal computer as rich and as accessible as a public library or you know a, a research institution, just to have as much information at everyone's fingertips as possible. Yeah, I, I mean, the original, one of the original uh, goals of Microsoft was like a computer on every desk, which, you know, at the time, was, like people thought of a computer as a thing that took up a whole room, it was like millions of dollars, and only only in the, I think it was 70s, and, and like early 80s, I, I believe, where it started to be possible to like create, uh, I think they're called microcomputers, where you get something closer to a desktop. So yes, it was, it was possible to suddenly... Uh, suddenly do those things, but um, I, I believe like the early people working on computing, such as Microsoft, like, th yeah, they wanted people to be able to do um, desktop publishing, as it was called at the time, like, wow, people could like create, you know, they could write books or create flyers or do, do these things that you think of like a big publisher only being able to do, only they have those resources, but being able to do that in your, in your home is, is something that's empowering for individuals and and businesses to do, but uh, but yeah, there's a lot of a lot of interesting backstory there as far as the uh, the early parts of computing and how Apple got started, how Microsoft got started. Um, like I believe that uh, that uh, Steve Jobs was like seeing all you know seeing these geeks playing these pranks and with the phone calls and 
and whatnot. And he's like, come on, guys. And then he <laughs> apparently uh, Steve Jobs convinced him to uh, build, uh, I think it was called a blue box, with this little device that would allow you to make free international calls. So Steve Jobs was trying to monetize this stuff. And other people were like, isn't it so cool that we figured out how to do this? So, yeah, pretty uh, pretty different uh, attitude. But, yeah, Steve Jobs started to sort of monetize things that that way. And then, you know, Apple Computer was started shortly thereafter when he realized that Steve Wozniak was so talented at, uh, like, doing software and hardware stuff. Now, you and I met at an anti-spying coalition meeting. Mm-hmm. When did you start attending meetings like that? Yeah, it's a good question. So, so yes, we were at the South LAPD Spying Coalition uh, meeting. I, uh, I believe it was. Yes. So, you know, so I'm working on, you know, like writing encryption software to protect people's uh, people's privacy. So for a while, I've gone around and okay, fear I should talk to as many potential users as possible, and kind of figure out okay, what kind of information that do people hold, kind of most uh, private that they that they want to protect. You know, is it you know is it you know, there's data sitting in Dropbox that's, you know, like unencrypted. There's stuff in Google Drive. There's emails. There's there's text messages. There's there's phone calls. In some cases, there are good ways to protect that that information um, that, that already exists. And they're open source and usually also free software. And we can talk about what, what some of those are. But, um, but, yeah, if I think of my own history and, and thinking about um, privacy and surveillance and whatnot, I guess we'd probably have to go back to around the time I was in college and just learning learning a lot uh, through college for sure. And I was a pretty studious person, but, uh, but I, I really feel like I learned more through the internet, even during college, than, uh, than I did um, like through my, through my classes. Right. And uh, I, I, just, I just became so aware of all these problems uh, that are going on in the world, all these injustices, and, you know, just, I mean, I remember there's a time where I just watched a bunch of these, like, interviews with, um, that were just up on YouTube, um, uh, interviews with homeless people and, like, all the challenges they face and just how unfair a lot of that seemed to be, and, like, that was really saddening, and then um, a pretty important moment for me was around the I think it was the summer of 2007, and there was this sort of uprising in Iran, and um, you know people are using Twitter and social media to communicate, and in like pretty gory detail, like in my Twitter feed, it's like okay, here's people in Iran who were literally being killed, and uh, there's this one woman in particular, I think her name was Nadia, something like that, uh, pretty young, and you just see her like get shot. And she like stops moving, and it's like you know, uh, it's really it, it's really horrifying to see. And I just felt like, man, I now more than ever, I'm like intimately familiar with these horrible, horrible things in the world. And you know, what am I going to do? Like retweet some video? It just felt so so powerless um, seeing these problems. And it's like, okay, they're thousands of miles away. You know, I, I, I would love to be able to solve homelessness, but I felt like I didn't have a great angle of attack. So anyway, it's just, I just it seemed like there were these mounting injustices in the world that I was becoming more and more aware of, and yet there wasn't one that I could kind of immediately go after. So like, that's happening. And then, um, but, you know, all, through all this time, you know, I'm a computer geek. I started programming a couple years after that. 
took a few programming classes in, in college, but mostly did, uh, did math and philosophy. But anyway, if we fast forward from, um, from that time, like I said, around 2007 to around 2012, um, I had co-signed a Santa Barbara hackerspace. I'm doing programming. I'm doing some entrepreneurial stuff, tech startup stuff, side projects, programming. And then um, suddenly around, yeah, I think it was 2012, um, I just started learning about, like, more about uh, surveillance, um, online surveillance. It was rumored at the time that Facebook um, had made it possible for the U.S. government to just kind of grab what information, whatever information Facebook had on all U.S. citizens that were Facebook uh, members and just kind of, you know, do do whatever they wanted, um, the government do whatever they wanted with that information. I was thinking about, okay, how could that be? abused. And then there's actually a show that uh, Julian Assange created. Um, at some point, it was called The Julian Assange Show. Um, it had a couple couple other names, but um, but eventually um, RT, which originally stood for Russia Today, anyway, they like they bought the rights and they were broadcasting it on online. And I was able to see this episode uh, called Cypherpunks. And I was, I was aware of what a cypherpunk was. A cypherpunk is somebody who believes that, um, that we should use encryption to protect human rights, especially privacy and uh, freedom of speech. And we can talk about how encryption could possibly enable freedom of speech a little bit later with a piece of, piece of software that lets you anonymously browse the web. But, uh, but anyway, in this episode, there's just such a compelling case laid out by Julian Assange and another guy named um, Jacob Applebaum, and they just made it super clear that, like, look, the whole world's information flows over the Internet. We have, like, militaries and spy agencies that are sort of infiltrating this thing. Humanity talks to itself. Activists organize. All these things happen over the Internet. People have cell phones now. People can be physically tracked in real time. And in, in one of my talks that I gave a few uh, years later, just earlier this year, I, I, I ran that as a thought experiment to people. And I said, imagine if Hitler had known the real-time physical location of every Jew. Wow. And it's like, oh, my God. Um, this, like, we're setting ourselves up here. Like, you, you realize how much worse the... Uh, you know, the Holocaust or something like that would have been if you had today's surveillance regime um, in place. Right. I, I you know? can't like, imagine. And not just being able to track every Jew, but being able to know who are the Christian sympathizers, you know, before exactly. they even do anything to help Jews escape. They already know, oh, well, these people must be sympathizers with the cause because they're reading these books or they're tweeting this thing. Yeah, it, it's so true. So, so protecting that information, yeah, they can, and, and you know, thanks to, um, and actually in that very episode of, of Julian Assange's show, uh, Jacob Applebaum mentioned that Facebook is the world's largest database of Jews, you know, and Muslims and Christians and everyone else, right? So it's like, if you have this kind of centralized power, this kind of centralized information on all of humanity, like we're just like begging for abuses here. And at that time, we didn't know about some of those. It would be about a year later when the full breadth of the surveillance state and what the national security agency's capabilities are, thanks to, thanks to Edward Snowden and you know, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, who reported 
on those leaks. But it, it started to become clear that, like, okay, this is a really, really important problem. And the solution is to write, a part of the solution is to write encryption software that, or write privacy enhancing software that leverages encryption and protects people's communications, protects their data, so that using the internet isn't this huge hazard to you know, everyone's freedoms. So the joke within the cypherpunk community is that a cell phone is a tracking device that makes phone calls, where like, if you think about it, like, it's definitely tracking physical location. Maybe you're making phone calls, maybe you're not. Like That's sort of secondary. It's definitely tracking. <laughs> like, that part is guaranteed if it's, if it's on in the first place. So, so anyway, uh, but like I said, I, I've sort of become aware of like there's all these problems in the world, and I don't seem like I have a, a good way to solve them. And then it's like, wait a second, I'm now a programmer. Um, like the, the two main programming languages that I was programming in at the time and, and still use are two of the best ones for writing encryption software in the first place. Like I'm, the internet exists so I can like distribute the software for free over the internet and like protect people's rights. At that point, it's like I have no, I have no excuse, I have no reason to not just like um, to pursue this, this aggressively. This is a, a place where I can make a huge impact potentially by protecting people's privacy with open source software. Privacy is has also been enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So, like this issue should have been settled, and in some ways was hundreds of years ago. And you know, but like one of the whole points of creating the United States in the first place was to have things like the, the Fourth Amendment and the First Amendment. And um, it, it's really sad to see even aspects, like major aspects of of the U.S. government um, under Obama and. I would, I'd be surprised if things were better under President Trump. I don't think I'll ever get used to using that phrase. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's hard to imagine things to be like less, you know, less authoritarian under Trump, probably. But uh, anyway, that that issue aside, it's uh, it's a scary precedent to see the uh, the government say, you know, we we need a backdoor. We need to be able to get into everyone's stuff, um, and they just don't realize that. Uh, they don't realize what other parts of the uh, what other aspects of the intelligence community realize, and that is that the U.S. has more to lose than any other country in the world by making software purposely vulnerable. Like, what a dumb idea! Um, so, yeah, so, so that so that battle is happening internally in like NSA and FBI and whatnot. But um, people who violate someone's privacy, you know, um, sure. like only if they only if they have a warrant, only if it's legal for them to do so. So. Anyway, that's uh, – well, <laughs> as I, you can tell, I'm yeah, – I remember one of the most interesting debates during the Republican primaries when, you know, it was still a full cast of goons up on that stage. And uh, it got really good when Rand Paul and Chris Christie were going at it because, mm, of, yeah. course, of course – yeah, you remember that part. Uh, Christie was saying, you know, we need to do some kind of mass surveillance just so we know who to get those warrants for. And, you know, it became this sort of catch-22 because Rand Paul was saying, no, you can't do any kind of surveillance like that unless you've already gone to a judge and gotten the warrant. And then it was just like this back and forth. Oh, well, how do we get the warrant unless we show them the evidence, which we would need to obtain from some kind of surveillance? So, I mean, how do you reconcile a debate like that? Right. You know, it, it, it's a good question. But, I mean, 
if the universe had just been created right now and we didn't know anything about history and we hadn't like mapped out terrorist networks and like, you know, looked at the phone books and the phone records of people who have been caught doing crimes and okay, who are they communicating with? Like a lot of that has been figured out. Um, so, um, so people pretend that like that you, the government needs to be able to fish around in a billion people's private communications in order to do their job. Which, you know, again, the Fourth Amendment was created to make it clear that um, it should be illegal for there to be anything like a general warrant. Um, you need to specify here's the particular p- person, here's why they're suspected, here's the things that can be seized, and and whatnot. Um, so another thing that's really, really, really important here is to understand that mass surveillance has never prevented a terrorist attack of any type. Wow. You know, so they say that it's critical for the NSA to be able to gather everything in order to uh, keep you safe. One of the most important points that Snowden has made and that I think has been underappreciated is that because the NSA is gathering everything, that is in fact distracting them, horribly distracting them from paying attention to the extremely few actual legitimate threats. Mm. So... For example, I mean, there's several examples here, okay? So 9-11 could have literally been prevented uh, without having to do any more surveillance than the NSA was doing at the time. And there was, a, like, like if you remember, there was this infighting right after 9-11 because it's like the NSA and the FBI and Homeland Security were all pointing the finger at each other saying, well, they didn't give us the information that we needed. And part of that was uh, – was true. Like each of them had a little bit of information it, such that if they would have pieced it together, they would have realized um, that there was, there was an attack uh, planned on the Twin Towers, but they, they didn't connect the dots. And that was their directive that they were given after 9-11. And I totally support that. But what does connect the dots mean? It means take the information that you already have and you piece it together to, to understand what you're looking at. So, but instead, what the NSA did is expand surveillance capabilities and just collect more and more information. So you're you're searching for a needle in the haystack, looking for some possible uh, terrorist attack, just piling and piling on more and more hay from just random like people who are not suspected of anything on the internet. That it's overwhelming the the NSA with information, so they can't find the the, the needle that's that's actually there. A second example, the Boston bombers. Uh, Russian intelligence told our intelligence agencies, look, there's these two brothers. One of them is associated with uh, some other terrorists. I think that they were in, in Russia. They told us, keep an eye on these guys. And we did a little bit. There's like an FBI file or Homeland Security file of, um, of these brothers. Okay, here's their background. Here's why we should keep an eye on them. But for whatever reason, they totally screwed that up. They didn't keep an eye on somebody who uh, foreign intelligence told us was a potential terrorist. And instead, you know, they're, again, they're trying to deal with like hundreds of millions or billions of people's communications, which is just totally insane trying to sift through that. You're going to have like millions of false positives where people, you know, use some phrase, sound suspicious, 
you know, in a text message and just try to look into that. I mean, there's not going to be anything there almost 100% of the time. So, yes, yeah, so, so understanding that, that history is really important because um, it's just a, a total false dichotomy, fascinatingly, uh, counterintuitively, but fascinatingly, to say that, uh, that there's this trade-off between privacy and security, mm. right? Like, like it's literally true that um, when you have less privacy, there's just a barrage of information that is distracting the NSA from actual threats. So we can have more privacy and more security. Now we just need, we need to realign the NSA. Like one of the worst perverse incentives that I know of that exists is the fact that the worse a job the NSA does, the more they will be showered with money, right? As soon as there's some attack, it's like, oh man, we need to give our intelligence agencies everything that they need. And that sounds reasonable, but like they just end up doing more more mass surveillance, and I'm really worried that the incentives are not in place where the NSA feels like, you know what, we really need to prevent uh, prevent these attacks. Although if we don't, you know, we'll just get billions and billions of more dollars. And then, like, there's there's all this money that goes back and forth between NSA and its contractors. Anyway, like, when you think of a big government run amok, people should be thinking about the, the NSA when you think of um, kind of a perversion of uh, centralized power within the federal government, you should think, oh, there's these like contracts uh, for like ridiculously high amounts of money that are just totally wasteful that are going to these contractors. Not that different from when like Dick Cheney was giving no bid contracts to Halliburton mm-hmm. and, and, and other companies. You know, so there's just this, this systemic uh, corruption at, uh, at several steps. And it's really, it's really unfortunate, especially because there's an NSA whistleblower named Bill Binney. Uh, sometimes he goes by uh, William Binney. And he worked at the NSA for 30 or 40 years. He was a code breaker. He, he helped actually create some, some of the NSA's spying capabilities in order to spy on Russia. And at a major um, hacker conference, Bill Binney spoke and he apologized to the audience saying, I, I didn't mean for the things that I created to be turned around and used against you. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. So there's these good meaning people that are trying to help the U.S. or trying to find foreign threats. And the NSA goes, wait a second, why don't we, why don't we use this domestically in order to find uh, domestic terrorists and whatnot? And then, of course, that's going to be used by, you know, Trump or whoever to, you know, find Muslims or black people or, or you know, Mexicans or whoever's going to be targeted. Um, even if it's not by Trump, any future president is going to have this enormous surveillance state just waiting to be abused. And people are too, I think in the U.S., we're too comfortable with the idea that, you know, the U.S. is just so special that any sort of horrible, you know, Holocaust-like event is somehow impossible or, you know, extremely unlikely, um, even with all the centralized power and all these people vying for, you know, these levers of power in order to control them. But anyway, I mentioned William Binney because he created some of these um, kind of spying capabilities. And one program that he created uh, is called FinThread. And what does FinThread do? It does something very important. Um, he, uh, Bill Binney says that he looked – that FinThread would um, automatically um, look for, like, potentially suspicious activity, and it would flag it for humans to look at. And he said that it did a very efficient job of, of, uh, of doing this processing. And 
Now, he, he also says that when it would like find uh, like personal information on somebody that like, could be uh, suspicious, that it would encrypt that information and then um, force that, per- that person at the NSA to get a warrant in order to look at some person's information because that would make it legal. And, <laughs> and William Benny wanted to do things legally. He said his bosses at the NSA were not interested in doing things legally, that they would rather just like not jump through these extra hoops, not ask for this special permission in order to do this, this mass spying. They'd rather just, just do it. They thought they could get away with that. We're going to cut through all the red tape. Right. Yeah, yeah. Let's just do whatever we want as like a secret government agency with billions and billions of dollars and, you know, not uh, not really respect the, uh, the intent of the Fourth Amendment. Um, another detail there uh, that Snowden mentioned, which, uh, again, I think this is a point that he made this is particularly underreported. He mentioned this at some like parliament meeting or some government meeting in uh, in Germany, where he remotely, you know, kind of teleconferenced in. Uh, Edward Snowden says that the NSA employs 120 lawyers to go through the legislation that governs what the NSA can legally do, and they literally redefine the words in those laws so the NSA can do whatever the fuck it wants. Unbelievable. <laughs> Isn't that just the greatest perversion of the law? Like, of course what you do is legal if you redefine what the words of the law mean. It's just, anyway, it's pretty, it's pretty disgusting. Um, it would be intellectually interesting if there were this actual uh, weighing between uh, privacy and security. You know, because like, if, if you just think of how the debate's normally framed, like that's a that's a hard question, but that's not reality. We don't have to give up civil liberties, and I'm I'm really happy that that's the case. You would think that if you were collecting everyone's information, that eventually you'd like have something useful that you couldn't have figured out through just traditional police type um, investigative work. Good old uh, fashioned could... police work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that's that's what that that kind of thing and FBI type stuff is what has led to um, you know gathering information that. It can be used to like prevent attacks, but mass surveillance hasn't done us any good. It's been really expensive and destroying civil liberties. So, uh, whatever we can do to um, like lobby against and put pressure on our legislators to uh, to do whatever they can to reel in the NSA, to get some more um, you know more oversight in there. There's programs that are extremely wasteful and just don't do any good. Uh, Snowden says that, um, that in the office, the NSA people would be like trading like nude photos of hot girls that they would find through this like mass surveillance. It's like they're not focused on Paris for the most part. You know, I mean, there's only I mean, there's only like a couple hundred thousand terrorists in the world. And, you know, there's like three billion people online. So, yeah, it's very they're just distracted. And that, that, that makes us less safe, but not more safe. That reminds me of when uh, some of those SEC agents that basically knew the great crash of 2008 was on its way, and instead they were, like, filling up boxes and boxes filled with porn. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, these people are making, like, six-figure salaries. And, yeah, wow. um, out of control. Now, it's funny. A lot of times when I frame this this argument to people, they're kind of like, oh, well, I don't really care. I assume... My apartment is bugged or whatever. I think we've all had like weird moments. 
Um, I had, uh, int- I actually used to work at a private investigation agency, and I oh, had wow. just seen the film, uh, The Lives of Others, which is all about the the East Germany um, in the eighties, at sort of the height of their surveillance apparatus. Oh wow! Um, right, right. The Democratic, the Deutschland Democratic Republic (DDR), I guess was the official term, and um. It's it's really an amazing movie. It's one of my all-time favorites. And um just enough strange things were happening. I, I basically was convinced that I uh <laughs> I was under surveillance, but I didn't think it was from any kind of federal agent in my case. Um mm. I thought it was just my boss spying on me. I mean, it's like this rich multimillionaire uh kind of obsessive personality tendencies. And I think my bigger concern, you know, we're talking about out of control government and, and, you know, federal waste and whatnot. But beyond that, because this is what I hear from a lot of people, they say, well, I have nothing to worry about. You know, they seem really not to feel affected or bothered by it because, you know, they know they're not a terrorist. They're not doing anything too insane and it's not really going to affect their lives. So, um, you know, they, they figure that it's worth it. And I'm like, well... I don't I mean, forget about the government. We can find ways to defund um, branches of the government, you know, th- mm-hmm. hold people accountable and whatnot. You know, I I don't see the government as such a distant and nefarious thing as, as a lot of people do. But what I am concerned about and I'm definitely not alone in this is crony capitalism, predatory capitalism and how a lot of these big businesses, these multinational corporations how they can use surveillance as an unfair advantage um, over, yeah. you know, more local businesses. And it um, it definitely seems like it's it just opens up this um, this kind of access to our behaviors. You know, it's spooky. Sometimes I'll I'll mention something like, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about getting a GoPro. I'll say that in a casual conversation and then I'll feel my phone vibrate. A second or two later, and it'll be like an mm. email from eBay saying, "Oh, we sell GoPros now. Check out some of these deals." And I'm just like, "What? Is that like a reverse microphone?" Or huh. I, I mean, the yeah. world is already just such a serendipitous place, and I love coincidences. And you know, I I, I, I do <laughs> Not believe all <laughs> I right. Well, I do believe in magic, and I feel like this weird kind of mechanized mass surveilled state we're in it takes away so much of that there already is such serendipity and when things like this happen you know it's just dirty you know it feels uh very very contrived so yeah i mean what do you think are we in more danger of of you know being spied on from our own government or from corporations or from sort of the the overlap you know the crony capitalism between the two yeah it's a good question i mean i I think it depends on the individual, right? There's different people who will, who will be deemed suspicious uh, by different groups. So, um, I mean, one thing I would say is luckily the same pieces of software will protect your privacy, whether, you know, regardless of who's like monitoring your internet connection, right? Your, or your, your, your phone or something. So like, you know, if your messages are encrypted, they're encrypted and whoever's trying to look at them other than the intended recipient uh, will not be able to read them unless they, you know, it's possible to like hack into someone's phone or to, you know, um, do perform certain attacks. But when it comes to either mass surveillance by the government or more localized surveillance by private companies or private investigators or people that are um, 
or even more local than that. You know, there's like, there's teenagers with like really, um, you know, invasive parents that won't let them, you know, send a message to anybody without trying to look at it and kind of, uh, you know, in, invade people's privacy that way. And so that's something that, uh, that I've had to try to become more cognizant of is kind of like you're saying where, okay, it's not just about this like mass surveillance stuff, this, uh, this government surveillance. There's, there's things, there's privacy violations that are a little bit closer to home, um, sometimes very, very literally. But, um, but yeah, I, mean, I would have to say that it depends on the, uh, on the on the individual and like what information they're really trying to keep um, keep private and who they're at risk of being um, spied upon from. But uh, but again, um, it's generally the same technologies that will protect your privacy, whether it's you know the government or criminals or or whoever who's trying to uh, get your information. Maybe you know, maybe they're trying to do some kind of identity theft. Maybe you know your mom doesn't. Uh, trust your, you know, boyfriend or whatever. Like, there's all these kinds of situations where uh, people are trying to, to to spy on you. But, um, but yeah, I mean, now might be a good time to talk about what some of those pieces of software are to protect your privacy. Definitely, yeah. I was just going to ask specifically, you know, about, um, you know, specific tricks and tips and techniques. So, how can people protect themselves? Yeah, yeah, great question. So, uh, the first thing that I would recommend doing, especially if you have a smartphone or if you have a smartphone, I would download a program, install a program called Signal, S-I-G-N-A-L. Uh, it's open source software, so you know that there's no uh, malicious uh, features that have been added to it, as we, uh, which nicely ties into what we talked about earlier. Um, so yeah, Signal, what does Signal do? Signal is a program that allows you to send encrypted text messages and have encrypted phone calls. Now, the person you're communicating with also needs to have Signal installed so that their phone knows how to uh, decrypt the messages that you that you send them. But there's some really, really top-notch uh, programmers who are working on Signal. There's a nonprofit called Open Whisper Systems. That, uh, anyway, they do really, really great work. Signal is the main program that they create. And uh, Signal works on Android. It also works on um, iPhones. And they also recently released a program called Signal Desktop, which is really convenient. Uh, I use it every day. Where if I get a text message, it doesn't just show up on my phone. It also shows up in the Signal desktop app on oh, my computer. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, yeah. So there's be times where you know I want to share some links or type up something that's longer, or just not be you know staring at my my phone or keep an eye on my phone. If I'm on my computer, I just get these little pop up uh, messages um, that uh, that show up, and yeah, I can use a full keyboard to uh, uh, to check. So it's really, it's really great. I definitely um, need to download that because oftentimes, you know, I'm away from the phone. It's charging in the other room or, mm -hmm. um, you know, I text uh, message myself, lots of notes and ideas and things yeah. to keep track of. And I don't really, you know, if the phone dies on me, I don't want to lose all that. So right. that is a great backup tool as well. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. So signal, uh, definitely number one of the, there's lots of, there, there's some privacy tools that aren't that easy to use, but signals very easy to use. So again, Android and, and iPhone, if you Great. just search for signal um, in your app store, then I would install that. Um, the second piece of software I would recommend that allows you to browse the web anonymously is a piece of software called Tor, the Tor browser. So if you go to torproject.org, T-O-R project, uh, P-R-O-J-E-C-T.org, 
then you should see a big sort of a download or install button. And um, that piece of software runs on desktop. It, uh, so it works on Windows and Mac OS and Linux. So it's pretty cool because Tor, like there's a network of volunteers sort of all around the world that run uh, special server software and um, on computers that they uh, that they have. So I, I run a couple um, couple Tor nodes, they're called. So what does that mean? So when you are using Tor on your desktop, then instead of your computer visiting some website directly, um, what what the Tor network does, it takes your um, your request to try to visit some website and it routes it through like three randomly chosen computers that are on the internet somewhere that are part of the Tor network uh, that are that are running on these on these servers and then only then um, after it's gone through these three hops uh, does it visit the website. So what that does is a couple things. So anyone who's monitoring your internet connection, whoever that is, they can see that you're using Tor. They see that you're on the Tor network, but they can't tell which website you're visiting. Ah. And um, whoever controls that website, uh, assuming you're not like logged in or specifying, you know, telling them your name or, or stuff like that, if you're just you know, not logged into something or logged into some like fake account not tied to your real identity, then when you visit that website through the Tor network, they can't tell who you are. And uh, specifically, they can't tell, they also can't tell uh, where you are. They can't tell that because they don't get your IP address, which is something that, uh, you know, it's a piece of information that websites usually get when you, when you visit them directly. So um, anyway, because you can determine somebody's physical location or approximate physical location from their IP address, Tor um, anonymizes your physical location from a website that you visit. So... So yeah, so towards the, the, the second major major piece, um, one really interesting use case of like the, this benefit that you can get from anonymizing your location is um, is the following. Um, there's this interesting story of there's this woman who tragically was um, she was um, experiencing uh, spousal abuse, she had an abusive husband, and she decided to um, to sort of escape and you know, with her child in order to um, get away from that. Now she still wanted to use Facebook, but if she, if like after she escaped and she went to like her new, new home, if she would have logged in from Facebook without using Tor, then Facebook would see her IP address. It would know where she's physically located. And another critical piece of information is that uh, her husband was like close friends with, uh, with some cops. And she knew that he'd be able to get a search warrant on her, no big deal. Mm. And with that, with that search warrant, um, then those police officers could have legally gotten certain information about her from Facebook, including which IP addresses and therefore which location she's logged in from. So it would be dangerous for her to, uh, to use Facebook without using something like Tor because that doesn't give away her, her location. Amazing. So that's, yeah. So, and you know, Tor uses all these encryption techniques so that again, when, when somebody's like looking at your, your internet connection, they just see this like encrypted information going back and forth. They don't know that you're like downloading some particular website or, you know, 
or leaking information to WikiLeaks or doing any of the other things that are really interesting that people can do with, with Tor. So yeah, the Tor, um, you go to torproject.org, the Tor browser bundle is what you're looking for. Um, right now, there's no good version of Tor that runs on iPhone that I'm aware of, but on Android, if you install Orfox, O-R-F-O-X, and what's it called? Orbot, O-R-B-O-T, you install both of those, and then you use Orfox, which basically is Firefox, but it's, it's a version that just goes through Tor, then you can anonymously browse the web on your Android phone. That's great. Yeah, so both of those are are excellent. There, there's a few other tools we could, uh, um, a couple of the ones that we could talk about, but both of those I highly recommend. I use them every day. Edward Snowden recommends that you use them. They're very, very good, open source. Um, they've been thoroughly audited from a security standpoint, so there's so there's not even, um, you know, so there doesn't seem to be any like accidental uh, vulnerabilities where you're. Um, you know, where your privacy could be could be violated. So yeah, those are those are great. There's some other if you want to do encrypted email, for example, like unfortunately that is harder to set up. And I can't just kind of mention one program that you just simply install and then you're 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 good. But um but yeah there's a couple couple other things that we can um talk about there. And I mean, you know, if you do a search online it uh, could be a Google search. Uh, actually, if you use DuckDuckGo.com instead of Google.com for searches, uh, that protects your privacy better. Right. I've heard about them. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 good. I mean, you know, it's a uh, yeah, it's another company, but they um, it's it's a major part of their sort of privacy policy and just part of their brand to not do any tracking. And um, of course, if you uh, if you do what I and some other people do, and you use DuckDuckGo through Tor, then they definitely, you know, can't do any sort of. Uh, how can I say? I mean, compared to you know doing a Google search while you're logged in into your Gmail account, and like Google is exactly who you are and what you're looking for. Uh, if, if you're you know not logged into, um, I don't even think it's possible to log into DuckDuckGo actually. But anyway, if you use DuckDuckGo over Tor, then um, then um, not only is DuckDuckGo not doing the extra tracking that Google tries to do, but they, they really can't because they, they don't know who you are. Right. So you're in safe hands. Um, DuckDuckGo, not only do they have a great mission statement, but it's just good to have a alternative like that to Google. And I'll tell you, I I knew that Google had finally reached the point of having way too much power over us. Once the word Google became a verb. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, like they, it's a, Great search engine, like the great results and everything, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, if you think of what, uh, you know, what any future government will have access to, for example, I mean, you know, if you think of all the information that Google and Facebook and Microsoft and um, Apple and all these companies have on you combined, and, you know, the NSA is pooling that together to just see what everyone is doing on, like, every website and then on the sort of more corporate side, you know, you can visit many different websites and tell a little bit of private information to each one, but sometimes on like behind the scenes, those different companies are kind of selling all that data and pool and then there's other companies that kind of pool that together. So um, I mean can you imagine if in if in kind of real life and in the physical world you like 
told a secret, a different secret to like five different friends. And then behind the scenes, they like all colluded and like they're trying to collect all this information and try to um, figure more and more out about you. Like that's, you know, that's what it's like, but it's not just a couple secrets here and there. It's like all, you know, everything you've ever typed into, you know, some, some website or any information that you've, that you've given. So yeah, uh, if you add all that up together, it can be pretty, pretty invasive, whether it's Google or, or anyone else. Yeah. Uh, you're you leaving yourself completely and utterly vulnerable. Um, I remember the concern used to be like, Oh, the public libraries, one of our few uh, socialized mm. institutions that's <laughs> still left. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. And I remember hearing, Oh, you know, you don't want to check out catcher in the rye from a public library because they do keep track of what books you're getting. And mm-hmm. um, if you're going to read a book like that, you're better off like going to a used bookstore and paying cash because right. um, obviously there were so many assassination attempts that were associated with fans of that book. And now, oh, wow. I mean, compared to Amazon and being able, if they were to be sharing, you know, every book that I was looking at, um, I could definitely see myself being on the wrong watch lists and uh, databases just um, just for the kinds of material we're reading. Yeah, no, that's it's a good point. And then when you think of, uh, okay, just check your stuff out from the library. When you read a book on your Kindle, Amazon doesn't just know which book you have. They know like which words you've read because they keep track of which page you're on so that when you come back, they can take you back to that page. Mm-hmm. So it's like what kind of psychological profiling, especially when you think of how sophisticated these algorithms are getting and all the other information that it's had about you. Like I'm really, um, yeah, I, I'm worried about what the, what the future of privacy looks like there. Um, one of the worst examples that is, I really find honestly pretty, uh, pretty depressing that I learned about recently is um, how sophisticated facial recognition is getting. And so it's like, you know, like in the future, we're going to be like at some political rally and I'm going to be seeing, you know, Trump speak, and I'm going to be shaking my head at the some of the stuff that he's saying with it, you know, with an, with an angry look on my face. And there's going to be like cameras that are pointed at the audience, spotting people who are now, you know, suspicious because they clearly disagree with what's being said. Therefore, they might, you know, oppose the state. Doesn't that kind of sound like terrorism all of a sudden, just because you disagree with the <laughs> with the statement that the, somebody's making? So it's like, man, you know. You know, I'm really, uh, really worried what, about the, the kind of physical security side or the this kind of overlap between physical and electronic surveillance, you know? Right. Where it's like because of the Internet and even people without Facebook accounts. There's people who are trying to just totally avoid it completely. But, you know, if, you know, you're going to eventually be in some group picture that someone puts on Facebook and the face is going to be like, oh, we don't recognize that face. And then if you're visiting web pages that have kind of Facebook cookies and like buttons and some stuff embedded in those pages. Uh, Facebook, like even before you have a Facebook account, Facebook is trying to track you. And then later, if you sign up for a Facebook account and they realize, oh, this is the same person who visited all these pages before, they piece that information together and have information about you even before you join Facebook. Wow. It's like, man, it's like they just got you from so many different you know, right now we're talking about like electronic surveillance and mass surveillance and stuff. But in the future, um, especially if, you know, there's Google Glass and everyone has like this wearable computer with a camera you know, on their face or on their body, like, mm-hmm. you know, your, your face is going to be on like hundreds of cameras every day. So it's like 
online and using things like Tor, that will be one of the only places, maybe the only place that people have, you know, or, or you know, inside your own bathroom or something. Um, but, but mostly online, it's like where you're going to have, have privacy. And, you know, it's really important from a sort of intellectual development standpoint. Another really interesting aspect of this argument, it came from a church where I did a little bit of work, and I think you did too, with Revolution LA, uh, the first Unitarian church in Koreatown. I've always had a lot of respect for the Unitarian Universalist movement, a lot of interesting figures that um, were involved with that church. They were suing, uh, the first Unitarian church was suing the federal government, particularly the NSA, and they mm-hmm. were the primary plaintiffs in this lawsuit. There were some other people that had signed on as plaintiffs, including the NRA. You know, they're probably just always suing the gov- federal government whenever they can, regardless of the cause. But yeah. um, it was a really interesting complaint. The church claimed that the NSA's surveillance on their assembly, it violated their First Amendment right to assemble. And, um, you know, freedom of religion, because if people feel like simply from going to church, they're going to be put on some kind of suspect list or some kind of watch list, then they're not going to feel safe and they're not going to, you know, feel comfortable in going to their congregation. So we had talked a lot about um, the Fourth Amendment earlier, but this is a really interesting case in how it violates several aspects of the First Amendment as well, and for good reason, because there are a lot of very sort of pacifist traditions mm-hmm. with with people like the Unitarians and the Quakers as well. Um, I think they went through some of this during the Red Scare in, in the 50s. Um, so, I mean, could you speak to that concern? Yeah, no, it, it's a great point. Um, I actually remember uh, uh, one of the talks that Glenn Greenwald gave, Glenn Greenwald, of course, being, the, uh, as I mentioned earlier, he wrote the Snowden story with, with uh, Laura Poitras, and he's been a fierce sort of advocate for, uh, for civil rights and, and whatnot in the, uh, in the U.S. For, <clears throat> for a while now. As he pointed out, um, as he started like, saying good things about WikiLeaks and critiquing the, uh, the U.S. government and like, overreach of surveillance and whatnot, he said that his readers were saying, you know, WikiLeaks does sound great, but if I start to support them, I'm afraid I'm going to be put on some sort of list because they're publishing this, like, classified information, and they're exposing all this wrongdoing. Uh, they're exposing uh, fraud, waste, and abuse. There's, of course, the uh, so-called collateral murder video that Chelsea Manning leaked to WikiLeaks. And as Glenn Greenwald reported, um, when... When our government went back to the Iraqis and tried to negotiate to stay in Iraq longer, they said they didn't want us there. And one of the reasons is because of that video that was leaked to WikiLeaks. So uh, Chelsea Manning and WikiLeaks literally helped stop the Iraq war. Incredible. Like, so that's the power. And, uh, and Chelsea Manning used Tor in order to give that information to WikiLeaks. Really? Uh, I, I, yes, yes, I believe so. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, WikiLeaks accepts basically everything over, over toward that they receive. Uh, I, would be, I would be shocked, especially for Chelsea Manning is a computer geek, I'd be shocked if she wasn't using a tour in order to, to do that. That's like the, the way that people uh, um, can you know, safely do things like that, even if they're under heavy surveillance. So, um, but, but anyway, I brought up the, the WikiLeaks thing, and um, Glenn Greenwald made that, that point. 
uh, several years before, uh, it was even uh, before Snowden, and, and lo and behold, um, it is true, it is literally true that the U.S. government has requested uh, from Twitter my personal information, my information from Twitter because I follow WikiLeaks on Twitter, and the government considers that to be a suspicious act. Wow. So, so when you have things like that, yes, it makes sense for people to think, well, wait a second, I don't really have freedom of association anymore, right? Because I could be targeted um, now. You know, that's nothing too, uh, too hardcore. I mean, Twitter doesn't have that much information about me and uh, nor uh, other, other WikiLeaks followers uh, since most stuff that's on Twitter is public and purposely public, but it's still, it's still pretty, uh, um, it, it's unfortunate that they you know, want to, to clamp down on, on those kinds of associations with their political enemies, which is basically what, what WikiLeaks is. So yeah, that's a very important point and underscores uh, the fact that using technologies like Tor enables you to not just protect um, your, your right to privacy, but I guess sort of through your right to privacy, through your uh, anonymity by using Tor, that you can, you know, create a fake Twitter account that you only use from Tor, right? And then you could, you know, follow WikiLeaks or do other politically political things on there, and it would be extremely difficult for the, the government to know that uh, that you are the one who's who's doing that. They can see that okay, there's some someone logged in from Tor uh, who's using who's you know controlling some some Twitter account, but but yes, using these tools enables you to get back part of your freedom of association, not just a privacy in a sort of narrowly construed way. And um, another part of the First Amendment, uh, right to free speech, is also um, protected by, by Tor. Um, and just right to, right to free speech in general, even if you're not in the U.S., not protected by the First Amendment. One interesting example of this is bloggers in Egypt. And, and bloggers in other countries where if they aren't anonymous and they're blogging abuses by their government, they can be tortured, they can be thrown in jail. So using an, um, anonymizing technologies like Tor, and Tor is like the, the best one that we have right now, um, people are able to have free speech, have privacy, have freedom of association. Wow. I had no idea Tor had already kind of played a role in history. So was that the leak of the helicopter footage? Yes, exactly. Yep, that's the, that's the Apache helicopter that was flying around. Um, there was some report that, okay, there's some people with guns, you know, somewhere in the, in the area. The Apache helicopter looked around, uh, saw some people on the ground. They didn't have guns and just, like, you know, killed all of them. Um, that includes two Reuters journalists. And the only reason why we found out about this is, well, I mean, we saw that we got the footage because of Chelsea Manning, but the reason why um, there was a fuss and why it was talked about, it, it's only because it was U.S. or, uh, I forget if it was U.S. or U.K. citizens, the two voter journalists, voter journalists, they were holding cameras uh, in their hands. It, it's only because there was, a, you know, like the Reuters and the families of those people were like, hey, where's, where are these people? They just, they just disappeared. So, so they wanted answers, and then thanks to Chelsea Manning, um, answers were were provided, um, but anyway, like the Chelsea Manning said that she leaked that video because these sorts of events were happening all the time. It was totally normal to um, yeah, just to just to kill a bunch of people down down below. Uh, they weren't armed. 
Um, so yeah, I mean it's pretty, uh, I mean it's fairly gruesome to uh, to watch. But the, like the most, the thing that is most striking about the video, in my view, and lots of people's views, is uh, just the, the attitude of our soldiers toward these human beings who were who were down there. And like, uh, so like, so they tried shooting a bunch of people. They're firing missiles and stuff. And somebody kind of ran off to the side. And there was somebody who was in a van. And uh, they, like, fired again, and they, uh, like, fired a missile into the van, and it went, like, through the, I think it went through the windshield, and they're just like, hell yeah, that was awesome. And wow. it's, it's, like they're, it's like they're playing this, uh, this video game, and w when Chelsea gave her official statement uh, during her trial, where she was convicted to 35 years in prison for exposing, you know, killing, arguably murder, by... By our military, that's how that's how whistleblowers get, get treated. So um, people tell Snowden, "Oh, you should have gone through the official channels. We should, would have totally, you would have totally gotten justice by going through, you know, the system by telling them that you're onto the illegal stuff that they're doing." No, it's total, it's total BS. Um, but but during Chelsea's trial, she said that she was witnessing things like this uh, on a regular basis, and it, she's. I think the phrase she used was like, "It's like." Um, like soldiers are acting like they're just torturing ants or just killing ants with a magnifying glass, and they just do not have enough sort of empathy for these lives that they're just ending. So, anyway, pretty pretty horrible incident. But uh, but yes, I mean, poor is like the the way that people are um, are able to leak some stuff over the internet without uh, without being caught, even if they're under heavy surveillance. And um, like I said before. If you're using Tor, then the website you're visiting doesn't know your location, doesn't know stuff about you, unless you're, you know, again, like logging to some service or you're telling, telling them who you are. So that also protects WikiLeaks, because WikiLeaks can honestly say, we don't know who leaked this. So even if you, like, hacked WikiLeaks servers or whatever to try to figure out who did the leaking, you wouldn't be able to figure it out because that information isn't stored. WikiLeaks doesn't know. If you want to be one of the very first to hear about the release of a new privacy-enhancing app built by Cryptag, Steve's nonprofit, or if you want to be one of the first to try out and help shape an early version of the upcoming Cryptag apps, including a chat and file sharing app that's extremely difficult to block or censor, a secure wiki app to take notes or collaboratively compose documents, or a task management app to coordinate and organize actions with your team, Visit cryptag.org and sign up for updates. Yeah, those are the, the major ones. Um, if people want to contact me, um, my website is tryingtobeawesome.com. And if you go to tryingtobeawesome.com slash contact, there's many ways to contact me. Many of those are encrypted. Several of those are anonymous. Um, there's, yeah, there, there's many ways to uh, get in touch with me. Excellent. Well, um, really loved having you on. I want to give a huge and heartfelt thank you to Steve Phillips, live from San Francisco, one of my favorite cities on earth, founder of Cryptag, organizer of Revolution LA, founder of Cypherpunk's Unite, uh, sorry, Cypherpunk's Write Code, look like Unite Code, <laughs> and <laughs> self-described small government socialist. Steve. Absolutely. Thanks again for being on and for all the great work that you do. Thanks, Colin. Appreciate it. Let's do it again. 
Yes, we will. And let me know when you're going to be in LA next. Perfect. I'll do it. Talk okay. to you soon, man. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, I want to give a huge thank you to everyone that tuned in and gave their time and attention. It was great. Uh, special thanks to co-producer Daniel Pierce, show director Myra Rodriguez, and Chris Cooley, who wrote and performed all of the music that you heard today. Uh, couldn't have done it without you three. Also want to tell all the listeners to please tune in next time when I interview Michael Ryan, who's going to tell us about clean energy, particularly Tesla technology. Fascinating years of study culminating in episode two that you don't want to miss. And also actor, improviser, and former political analyst Jim Shipley is going to debate some current issues with me, as well as share some inspirational wisdom with you. So we'll see you next time at the Populous Papers.